Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, June 8th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Well, we're going to start off today like we started a number of episodes over the past few weeks. We are talking about former FBI Director James Comey. We are taping a rare afternoon taping of the Nerdcast uh, to accommodate uh, former Director Comey's morning testimony uh, to the uh, one of the Senate committees investigating Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. So we're going to talk about what he uh, had to say particularly about President Donald Trump and his interactions with him. Besides that, we've got a lot of straight politics news this week. We had a gubernatorial primary election in New Jersey on Tuesday. We've got another one coming up next Tuesday on June 13th that a lot of analysts and people watching it are saying says quite a bit about the future of the Democratic Party. So we'll talk a little bit about who the candidates there are to be the next governor of Virginia and why that race is garnering so much attention. And then we've got Georgia's special house election creeping up on the horizon. That's coming up on June 20th. There was a big campaign finance deadline today. Early voting is starting. We're going to go through all the numbers there and just what's going on in a house race that has captured uh, attention across the country. A few quick housekeeping notes before we get going. Remember, please email us with your questions, if you have them, at nerdcast at politico.com. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, uh, if you have the time as well. We want to spread the word about the Nerdcast, grow more listeners, and improve the show, so please let us know how we're doing. Uh, we're always happy to hear from our listeners. And with that, let's hear from our panel. All right, let's jump right into it with the Nerdcast panel. We have Politico's chief investigative reporter, Kenneth Vogel. That's me. Hello. Not for long. Well, oh, geez. Um, Rub it in. Why <laughs> uh, senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hey, Scott. And national political reporter, Eliana Johnson. Hello. All right, so our first data point this week is the number three, and that is the number of times that former FBI director James Comey directly contradicted President Donald Trump during his testimony before a Senate committee on Thursday, at times using the L word, lie. So, Ken, the, this this is the, the biggest developments. You know, some of the main stuff coming out of this in his opening statement about the existence of memos detailing conversations between President Trump and Comey when he was FBI director, this stuff had come out in the media beforehand. But of the things that happened in the hearing today, this is what really jumped out at you. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that a lot of the stuff had been already reported or disclosed by Comey or reported by uh, disclosed by Comey's friends, we should say. And that's a critical distinction because there's a episode that he details that gets into like how he disclosed things. Uh, but the, the hearing itself was largely a chance for both sides to score some rhetorical points. And I think Democrats and uh, the anti-Trump forces probably scored quite a few more as a result of 
this uh, invocation of the L word at least twice. The first time was actually in his opening statement, separate from the written opening statement, where he was explaining why he uh, kept such detailed notes, these, wrote up these memos, and he said one of the reasons was, I was honestly concerned that he, he, Trump, might lie about the nature of our meetings, and so I thought it was really important to document. Second time, he was saying that, um, or maybe that was the second time, the first, the, the, the first time was he was saying uh, that uh, talking about Trump's sort of retroactive explanation for why he was fired uh, was that, um, you know, he was uh, he had lost the confidence of the organization, the FBI. The FBI was in disarray. Uh, Comey said those were lies, plain and simple. A lot of people seized on that. And then the third time, um, which I think is, you know, one of the more significant really gets into the impetus for one of these pivotal interactions with Trump. Trump said they had a dinner at the White House. Trump said uh, that it was because Comey called Trump and requested the dinner. Uh, uh, Congressman King of Maine asked Comey, did you ever call the president? No. And he says, um, you know, that in fact, that night that he had actually had a dinner date planned with his wife and he would have preferred to have done that. But Trump called him in. So I think it really gets at the extent to which. All of the things that we're discussing out of this hearing and really the focus of this Russia story has become about things that are really incidental to the actual the actual motivation for this investigation, which is Russia's meddling in the in the election and any potential collusion between Russia and Trump. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how Trump has handled this. And I think all the things that are at the fore of this hearing are things that Trump really brought on himself. Questions about whether Trump pressured Comey to drop the investigation into former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Why Trump fired Comey and then smeared Comey. Trump's suggestion that there may be recordings of Comey and Heat and Trump talking in the White House, which is what caused Comey to go public with or go through a friend to go public with one of these memos in the first place, which Comey admitted was an effort to, to sort of spur the, uh, the appointment of a special prosecutor, which has been successful. None of these things would have happened had Trump not responded the way he did. Well, and also just Comey's description of his conversations with the president uh, it paints a, a picture of uh, a, a President Trump who's extremely agitated about the mere existence of, of the, these questions in this investigation. Right, Eliana? Well, one of the things that, uh, that jumped out at me was, in Comey's telling, Trump's focus on having Comey make public the fact that he personally was not a target of the investigation rather than impeding investigations that were already underway. In fact, um, Comey said that, um, you know, Trump said, it's fine with me if you investigate my colleagues or people on my campaign. And in you fact, them satellites. satellites. That was right. a weird term. In fact, you know, go ahead and do that. But I, I really want um, you to to make public the fact that I'm not the target of an investigation. That seems to me to sort of shift the narrative in that Comey said specifically, no, Trump did not try to stop um, an investigation into Russian meddling in, into the election and really suggests that Trump fired Comey. Um, nobody said this explicitly, but my takeaway was that Trump fired Comey out of frustration that Comey wouldn't publicly say that uh, Trump was not the target personally of an FBI investigation. And I actually thought Republicans did kind of score some points 
in this one area, the, the question as to why he didn't come out or why it wasn't leaked that Trump was not a, a target of the investigation. Of course, it had become apparent at a certain point, but contrasting that with the way that Comey handled the investigation into Hillary Clinton's handling of classified information, the uh, so-called email investigation, where he did come out and say that they had concluded that there was no criminal wrongdoing, even if uh, Clinton acted extremely recklessly. Um, and the questions that Republicans had were why he didn't do the same thing uh, with Trump. And I actually thought, while I do think Republicans scored some points on that, I do think he kind of explained it in a way that to me was plausible, which is that and actually brought it back to some of his concerns here, which is that he felt prompted to do that because of what he perceived to be improper meddling by the Obama Justice Department and by Obama's attorney general, Loretta Lynch, where she went and met on a plane on a tarmac with Bill Clinton as this uh, uh, email investigation was proceeding, that that he felt like that was improper. And he he acted. He went sort of public, so to speak, to in order to uh, sort of take the investigation out of the realm of of, uh, you know, political interference, which is part of his motivation, as he puts it, for uh, his actions in, in this uh, in the Russia investigation with Trump. Charlie, it struck me that uh, nothing was really resolved today. Uh, there's no real hard evidence as after today's testimony or yesterday that he hindered the investigations. I mean, there, we know that Trump hindered that the Trump did. I mean, now we have validation of the Comey story that had already been reported. Uh, we knew that yesterday from Comey himself, but there's, you know, there's no evidence of collusion of Russia, none of which, uh, I mean, I'm not saying that that's exculpatory, but it does, uh, it, it doesn't advance the story beyond what we already know. But I, what I do think is interesting is I found that I, I thought it was very revealing about the, the two main characters here, uh, about Comey, you know, I thought he acquitted himself well, but it did reveal him to be, uh, you know, to me, maybe a little too calculating, a little too clever, a little too much of an Eagle Scout in the way he released his uh, comments in advance to sort of uh, prep for today and to, to capture the news cycle a little bit and to set uh, sort of to prepare the landscape on his own terms. And I think his testimony also revealed uh, a not only a capricious president, but a naive and amateurish one who operates that way and could be so ham handed in how he tried to uh, get this idea across to directly to, to Comey that I want you to stop this. Yeah. And to me, actually, the contrast between them and the way that they handled this situation is is very telling and was a, and was a major takeaway for me and one that does not redound to the benefit of Trump. Comey, you're right, calculating. I've heard strident, like he, he's just a little holier than thou, trying to frame all his actions as being to protect the integrity of the FBI, the investigation, law enforcement, separation of powers, et cetera, but that there were you know, some, some differences in the way that he handled the Clinton email investigation versus the way he handled this. Nonetheless, I thought that like it became abundantly clear just how precise he is, that he wrote all this stuff down. He was able to recite details of it and dates of it. Contrast that to Trump, who in the span of a day after Comey's firing was like, yeah, I fired him because this guy Rosenstein told me to do it. And then he's like, nah, I fired him because of the Russia investigation. Then he went and told the Russians that actually firing Comey had lifted some weight, a burden off of him, and that allowed him more flexibility to act. 
I think that if you put those two, the shifting stories and sort of impulsive behavior of Trump up against the calculating and precise approach that Comey took, and if, if it's going to be a he said, he said, you got to think it favors Comey. You know, this reminded me somewhat of what happened um, with Comey and Hillary Clinton, where Comey detailed a litany of wrongdoing on Clinton's part, but said she didn't break the law ultimately. And it seemed to me um, the substance of Comey's testimony, though he said he couldn't answer some questions publicly, was he did, he, he again, he detailed a litany of wrongdoing, of improprieties, um, of inappropriate things that Trump did, but it didn't seem to me that he... Um, was able to make the case, if he wanted to, that Trump broke the law. Yeah, and he and he stopped short. I mean, he was asked about that specifically, the obstruction of justice question. Uh, and I thought he was, you know, he was pretty calibrated and nuanced in that, despite the fact that, like I said, in his... Um, his, you know, characterizations of of what uh, Trump did is, and his his rather his perception. So the the question came like, did he order you? Did did uh uh you know Trump order you to drop the investigation? He said no, uh, but you know his words left the uh, left an impression that. You know, in, in some ways, I guess I, I'm like circling back on myself, but uh, in some ways that is is not that precise and allows for wiggle room. But it also shows that he's sort of willing to concede that there is like some nuance and shading and what otherwise he has presented in a fairly black and white way. The one big takeaway uh, I have from this is that, you know, and I, I've already given up on the congressional investigations. Uh, I gave up on the House one a long time ago, and I just don't know about the Senate. But I do think we're going to have to rely on uh, the special counsel's uh, investigation to get to the bottom of any of this, particularly on the question of uh, obstruct- obstruction of uh, justice, because, you know, we just didn't get enough of that today. I mean, that's a it's a hard one to prove. And from what Comey was saying today, I don't think it meets the legal standard. We, you know, I didn't hear anything about the, the real intent part of uh, of that. And I mean, you could see how they would, would try that case, maybe. And you'd, you'd say that when when the president told everybody to get out of the room, that's when it showed uh, evidence of his intent. But I don't know. Uh, it seems to me, you know, right now there's just not much out there and we're going to have to wait a long time to get any answers. Yeah, two things on that. I mean, no, number one is, you know, you're, you're talking about we got to rely on the FBI, the special prosecutor. I mean, I agree with that, certainly. And what, that would have been my, you know, that was that was always sort of my assumption, particularly with the Nunes mess on the House Intel Committee. But I was actually impressed by the questioning of the senators today, uh, much more so than yesterday, where they had Rogers, Coates, Rosenstein, and McCabe before them. And I just thought they were just lecturing, as they typically do at hearings like this. And there was some pretty good questioning. I mean, yesterday I was there were a few occasions where I was like, that's the wrong question, or like you gotta jump in with a follow-up here. It's clear that they weren't really like listening. Maybe they were sort of preparing for the main event, you know, they were like looking forward to game seven and and uh overlooking game six, but I thought that they accorded themselves well. Uh and then the second thing on your point, Charlie, like that I agree that there that this did not go a long way to building a case for destruction of justice. But like, if that's what Republicans are seizing on, like this idea that like, yeah, he did a bunch of like 
you know, crazy stuff and it was like improper, it looked bad, but it wasn't obstruction of justice. Like that's, that's pretty like that. That's, that's a pretty like resoundingly negative position for the Trump administration to be in. Yeah. I'll, I'll stipulate to that already. I mean, I think that that's already, you know, beyond question. I I would take an opposite view though on the performance of the senators. I, I, you know, for, that's a committee that has a lot of uh, lawyers on it, and the I former really, prosecutors. Yeah, and I really wasn't that impressed. Nobody's line of questioning to me just suggested sheer brilliance, uh, where they walked him into saying something he really wasn't comfortable uh, saying, or I, I don't know. I just I wasn't as impressed. And then you had Senator McCain, oh. who I, I don't know what was going on there. So that, bad. He said yeah. that he was up late watching the baseball game and didn't get enough sleep. So yeah, you got to come with some slack, Charlie. I, I, I was up I late will... watching the NBA Finals and drinking a bottle of wine and I was still able to tweet very cogently and articulately on this Well, matter. you know what can your spry young lad That's true. Um, I, I, w- I will say Charlie to that point. Don't the, rub it in. This is, seems like one of the few instances in, in these many, many hearings that go on on the Hill where the witness is more practiced at uh, what he's doing than the than the lawmakers, the questioners are with them. And we've seen Comey over the course of his career do this again and again. And this is a setting in which he's very comfortable uh, and and kind of owns owns the stage when when he when he walks into those hearing rooms. Yeah, I have to say though, I think it was so his distaste for Trump was so visceral and so obvious. I actually don't think it helped his case because he came off point. like someone That's trying an to point. land a blow on the president rather as uh, rather than as. Um, you know, a nonpartisan or unbiased witness. But one of the things that I thought, and I agree with that, but one of the things I thought that was so telling was like he wasn't really like getting a lot of like hostile questioning. Like even Burr, the chairman, was kind of leading him along. Like the prosecution would lead a friendly witness. Uh, and it wasn't like, you know, yesterday, Kamala Harris versus Rogers, which like God, she just basically told him to shut up. Though Rogers definitely did keep interrupting her. But nonetheless, you know, it was it was a much more like collegial hearing at a moment when I thought that like uh, it would it may, it might have been in Republicans interest to be like a little more hostile and to come at him a little more aggressively. It was, you know, it was truly like bipartisan and, and did have a real like I thought fact finding, um, you know, came across as like a real like fact finding mission, which is what these things are supposed to be. <laughs> that seems like as good a place as any to cut off segment one and move into uh, our, our second topic today. And our data points for this, we're shifting gears uh, pretty, pretty hard here uh, from uh, this Russia investigation and what's going on in the halls of Congress to some elections. Uh, our data points are 48% and 47%. Those were the pr- uh, winning primary percentages for the uh, new candidates for governor in New Jersey. They had their primary this week. Democrat Phil Murphy and Republican Kim Guadano will face off in the general election to replace uh, Chris Christie as governor of the Garden State. So, Charlie, tell us a little bit about what happened here. Christie, a lame duck now, uh, but looming over everything that, that goes on in, in Jersey politics and this being one of the one of the big races that uh, we're going to be following for the rest of 2017. The big one for... Uh for uh, Vladimir Putin to try to hack into, or is that Virginia? I forget what she cares more about. 
Guys, can I just shop for shoes during this segment? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, the, the Christie story is an amazing one, a, a, an amazing rise and fall uh, political story. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to say that. It's been so <laughs> overdone, I think, uh, in recent days. But, I mean, it's just really a stunning arc when you think back to, you know, within his first year of taking office in New Jersey. Remember when there was uh, a group of Iowa donors that flew out to drum thwack at the uh, governor's mansion yes. to beg him to run for president? David I mean, Koch among them. Yeah. Now, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, do and you, then, do you think? Sorry, sorry that to interrupt. Was a meeting but in New do, York, do you, David Koch wouldn't go into New Jersey, but he came up <laughs> to a meeting in New York of do, a bunch of these big donors. And he definitely my, wouldn't go to Iowa. My right. my personal theory about this is that Chris Christie must think about that meeting every day of his life at this point. That he had that meeting and chose not to run in 2012. Sure, <laughs> it's, it's the George Will theory of uh, running for for president now. Remember back, uh, I think it would have been 2007 or 2008 when he wrote a, a column about Barack Obama and he called it the uh, girl, something like the girl in the tippy toes theory of running for office now. Now that when a girl steps uh, gets on her tippy toes and presents her lips to you, you kiss her, and that's what he was imploring <laughs> Obama to do, and uh, that's what do Christie you have any must other have done. D- more disturbing analysis. Imagine George Will writing that. Is or how about Chris Christie off, on his tippy toes, oh, uh, ready to oh kiss you? Can wow. So either way, uh, his story is really remarkable. The the rise and fall of Chris Christie. Um, you know, he he was at those heights, and then. Uh, you know, really now has bottomed out. He's at uh, you know rock bottom in approval ratings in New Jersey. He can't get out of there soon enough, as far as the the voters are concerned. Uh, his lieutenant governor uh, has to avoid him at all costs. He's like a pariah there, and I, he's even acknowledged it to some extent in his public comments. Uh, the Democrats have already made clear they're going to make the race a, a, a referendum on Christie's uh, tenure in office, and so you know he's also uh, his stature is in question. He put a lot of skin into the game for. Donald Trump. What did he get for his trouble? He didn't even get the job he wanted in the administration. Uh, and so that is the backdrop for this election this fall in New Jersey. Of course, the Democrat, uh, Goldman, former Goldman Sachs executive. That went well last time. Yeah, right. right John Corzine. <laughs> Uh, so you could see him being susceptible as well, but I agree it's all about Christie. Well, that tells you more about the Democratic Party than anything. Uh, I mean, keep in mind that just a few months ago, we, Bernie uh, Sanders and other progressives were railing against Goldman, and here Democrats have nominated a uh, former Goldman Sachs exec, and it goes to show you that the, the establishment uh, strikes back here in a place like New Jersey, but also elsewhere. It goes to show you that for all the energy and progress made by progressives on the left, and they have made a tremendous amount of of progress. They are uh, overtaking that party. Uh, the establishment, whether it's the right or whether it's the left, it doesn't really matter. The political establishment is really, really hard to uproot and change its ways. Especially in New, New Jersey, of all of all states, where there's still a very, very strong party machine uh, throughout the state, right? It also tells you how the hacks think, how political hacks think. Because if you look at New Jersey, which is you know a really urban, cosmopolitan state compared to a lot of them, uh, it is you know it has the highest percentage of hacks per capita, probably of any place. It's still run like a fiefdom. You know, it's probably run the same way it was at the turn of the century with with these machine bosses running the, the what thirteen counties there, and they and and it's like a, a haven for rich people who come in and just throw millions of dollars all over the state. And they buy the nomination. I mean, not that, and that's all. It, it sounds like it's not different than most places, but it is a lot different than most places to the extent where you can just come in and buy the nomination. Usually, you have to at least make a little bit of a play for their on the retail side and kind of uh, work things across the state, but not in New Jersey. I mean, you. 
you always have this like dynamic in the in the off year elections in Jersey and, and Virginia coming after the presidential of the you know the dichotomy between the local issues in this case obviously in New Jersey a referendum on Christie and the national groups and national operatives trying to nationalize it and make it about Trump or make it about uh, you know the divide in the Democratic Party and you already see the national groups coming in the RGA the Republican Governors Association uh, and um, uh, has has uh, gone after Murphy, and then you have uh, the DGA and American Bridge, which is a national super PAC headed by David Brock, who I'm pleased to say is on the mend. He had a uh, really uh, 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 profound health scare a little while back, and I understand he's back at work, so I can break that news here on the Nerdcast. But uh, this is nonetheless, why you guys tune in, right? The David Brock health <laughs> update. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, so so you have two things going on. It will be the same thing. I'm actually hurt, you know, th- thinking about your um, assessment that, like, in New Jersey, you can kind of like swoop in and and buy the nomination or throw money around. I mean, look at look at look at Virginia with uh, Terry McAuliffe last time, and uh, you know, this time on the Democratic side, Tom Periello is. Uh, uh, an Obama, uh, you know, former congressman, former Obama administration official, like nobody's definition of like a like a Virginia country boy uh, on the Democratic side being uh, the leading candidate. Well, yeah, let's talk about Virginia. So that's the next gubernatorial, that's the other 2017 gubernatorial race expected to maybe be a little more competitive than the one in New Jersey because there's no unpopular Chris Christie dragging down one side of the ticket there. But here's, here's a data point from Virginia, which has its primary uh, next Tuesday on June 13th. Uh, $3.7 million. And uh, that, that's how much Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, has spent on TV advertising ahead of next week's Democratic primary. And Periello, uh, on the flip side, has spent $2 million. So it's almost a two-to-one advantage. And we had a story this week by Kevin Robillard, uh, one of our political reporters, just about how, I mean, how important this is in a, in a big state where, you know, no one knew either candidate really well. Uh, at the beginning. And, you know, Tom Periello came in with these, you know, Obama-era credentials and uh, really as this anti-Trump uh, firebrand type. But it it turns out he, he has not been able to get his message out as, as much as uh, the more establishment-minded opponent. Right, Charlie? Yeah, I think it's a more interesting race than New Jersey uh, because of what it reveals about Virginia. And Virginia really matters in a way that New Jersey doesn't because Virginia is still kind of a swing state in a way that New Jersey's not. New Jersey is, you know, rock-solid blue at this point in presidential races. Virginia is not. And uh, Virginia is transitioning, I, I think, between between a couple of different things. And, and one of the things transitioning in Virginia is the Democratic Party. It's going from the the old version that that uh, held sway for for many decades, very establishment oriented, and you know you you bide your time coming up through state office. You, you know you win statewide to prove you're a comer, you're a player, like Northam did, who's the lieutenant governor now. Bide your time, then you get your shot at the uh, the big show at the governor's race. He did that. Periello jumped in after just winning what a single term in the House. And uh, then getting knocked out, jumped in the race with a lot of national assistance, whereas Northam was sort of doing it the old way. Um, And so I think the outcome of that race will tell you a lot about uh, the evolution of Virginia politics, particularly on the Democratic side, because we know it's changing dramatically. The power center has left Richmond and has gone to Northern Virginia, where all the the money and the population is right now. And the best evidence of that was the election of Governor McAuliffe. Uh, A a person like Governor McAuliffe, with some of the baggage he had from the National Democratic Party, uh, I think could have never been elected a decade or maybe two decades ago. Uh, But now he was, uh, you know, it wasn't as much 
much of a problem in this modern Virginia, and we'll see as a result of this primary just how much Virginia is changing. And on both sides, I mean, Gillespie on the Republican side is very similar to McAuliffe, right? Totally. Um, And he's this sort of the the anti-Trump, like a consummate insider with deep connections to the money folks who can raise a lot of money. Uh, on the Democratic side, yeah, the, the cash advantage uh, or surprising disadvantage for Perriello uh, is significant, but I think he's going to be the beneficiary of so much outside group spending. George Soros has already has that up as like one of his top races, and he sunk a bunch of money into a super PAC that's going to play there. So I think that will be offset the actual fundraising by the outside group uh, fundraising. You know, to to me on the Democratic side, it's not quite this simple, but um, the Northam Perriello matchup raises questions to me about has the Democratic Party learned anything from uh, from Trump's victory? Um, You know, Northam to me is is much more of an old school kind of um, 60s, 70s era Southern Democrat. And I think this comes out um, much more so in sort of their public image than in their actual positions. Perriello is much more kind of in the Obama uh, mold. He's he's young. Um, he doesn't have all that much experience. He has a Yale pedigree, and he's running kind of as a you know post politics populist. Um, and so I think it'll be really interesting. I think somebody said Northam, you know, cut cuts a uh, figure kind of like a an old country doctor, um, which he is. He uh, and you know he seems kind <laughs> of like a novelistic figure yes um, you know, like Andy Griffith <laughs> yeah um, so I think it, it and it's interesting to me that the big and the the major endorsements have lined up behind Northam rather than behind Perriello um, that's so, Governor McAuliffe Senator Kane Senator Warner yeah uh, so I think that's fascinating um, and it does show kind of a shift within the Democratic Party um, will be really interesting uh, I, I was with a prominent Democrat on a television set the other day who said to me, um, Perriello is not going to win. He's not going to be governor, but he's going to win that primary. And I do think it goes to show um, that all these endorsements, just like we saw in the Republican primary during the presidential campaign, all these endorsements um, may not amount to much. Um, on the other hand, we may see that Democrats have learned something from in both 2016. Part, uh, the, the outcomes of both primaries will show to the extent to which Virginia politics has been nationalized. You, you know, the point Ken was making that yeah. both primaries are very similar in that they have national party chairmen who were former Washington lobbyists. Uh, you, you know, you've got the McAuliffe example. Uh, then you could have Gillespie as his successor. And uh, all of a sudden, it begins to look like Washington politics, you know, just sweeping over uh, over the state of Virginia, which is something you never would have thought of before because it was such a distinctive state. One thing one thing I would say about Northam in the Democratic primary, though, is that he cuts he speaks and kind of cuts that image of the old country doctor. But he has adopted a lot of the rhetoric that we would associate with the National Democratic Party yeah. at this point. He's a politician. We can. Well, yeah, exactly. But we can we can uh, play one of his ads right here. Progressive organizations across Virginia endorse Dr. Ralph Northam. Making progress means taking on tough fights. And as governor, I won't let Donald Trump stand in our way. Um, and, you know, he's been calling Trump a narcissistic maniac in, in his ads. And he, he says that as a pediatric neurologist, he's using that in the, the medical terminology. That's his diagnosis. Um, but he, you know, he uh, cuts more of a moderate... Uh, kind of pers- has more moderate personality and figure, like uh, Eliana said. But in terms of the policy positions, I think he 
has all like Periello has banked on this idea that Virginia is moving left relative to the country and there's a little bit more room to tack to the left for someone running for governor there even in a non-presidential year. All right, well, that is one election to watch over the next week. But the week after that, we've got another one coming up. Remember, the Georgia special house election is on June 20th, and that's the subject of our third segment uh, with this data point, 12,694. And that's the number of voters through Wednesday. It's going to be larger by the end of the week. But that's the number of voters through Wednesday who had already cast early votes for that June 20th special election, even though they didn't vote in the first round of the race, an all-party primary on April 18th. And, you know, 12,000 is not an enormous number, but we're, we're starting to talk about a few percentage points worth of votes there, especially in a race where John Ossoff, the Democrat, came pretty close to winning the first time out. So, Charlie, I mean, the the polling has been closed, the spending has been very high, and it looks like voters are just pouring into this contest at rates you would not typically expect from a an irregularly scheduled election. Yeah, it, it, it's like a perfect storm special election. Uh, it's not just the importance of the actual seat, because one seat is not going to matter in uh, – determining the House majority right now, but I think it's the symbolic value of an election like this one. Democrats are uh, completely radicalized right now. They're channeling all their energy there. They're channeling their money there. Uh, They can taste victory. I mean, he's much closer than he has any business being in a district that has uh, for several decades been easily kept in Republican hands, and they might actually take that thing. I think I'm uh, far more uh, I, I find it far more believable that Ossoff can win that seat now than I did, say, a month ago or six weeks ago. Uh, they can pull off a victory that would be uh, extremely demoralizing for the uh, Republican Party because I don't think it will set off a panic in the Republican Party the way it might have if they had lost Montana as well. But it will show that there is something in the water, that clearly there's something to be uh, afraid of in 2018 if you're a Republican member of the House. And number two, it will have a demoralizing effect on the White House because uh, the White House is invested in this. I think Pence is about to make a visit. The president has robocalled there. The White House was watching very closely before uh, there were reports that Steve Bannon was monitoring it very closely. So this is a race that's ma- that matters a great deal, both uh, in Georgia, but especially in Washington, D.C. El- Eliana, I, I, I thought it was interesting what, what Charlie just said about how the Democratic Party is radicalized right now. And yet we're seeing, I, I feel like this race is evidence of how opposition to a president is like the single strongest force that can hold an opposition party together at this point. Because especially at this time when Democrats are moving to the left and on, on policy, you see a candidate like John Ossoff getting money poured in from all over the country. And yet when he's asked a question uh, at, at debates this week about, say, single-payer health care, he says that he does not support that. He gives a very Hillary Clinton-like answer. He says he doesn't support it. He says it's not a plausible thing. And yet he is the star of kind of the, the Democratic net roots at this point. Yeah, look, it, this is a, a, a very anti-Trump district, um, and it wouldn't be that extraordinary for a Democrat to win it, though it would be an accomplishment for them. But it would be hugely galvanizing for the Democratic Party to notch a win in one of these special elections. That's why I think you're seeing all this outside money pour in. It doesn't really matter who the candidate is. Um, the Republican candidate is not particularly strong. Um, Ossoff is not particularly strong. I just think it would be a huge moral victory, a real shot in the arm for Democrats, in particular amidst all these scandals swirling around the White House, um, for them to be able to 
um, win this seat in Georgia. One thing that hasn't gotten a lot of attention that I think should is uh, it is further evidence of a uh, the end of the Republican suburban era. And that hasn't been talked about a lot. I mean, the suburbs were the backbone of the Republican Party uh, in the post-war era. And increasingly, they are uh, doing worse and worse in the suburbs. They lost the Atlanta suburbs this time around. They lost lots of big, important suburbs where they used to win, places like Orange County, California, places like Cobb County, which is a slice of this district. And I don't know how that party going forward establishes a viable electoral coalition if they continue to deteriorate in the suburbs. I think the coalition that Donald Trump put together was almost like lightning in a bottle uh, because all of a sudden, if if uh, if Democrats are able to keep together this this budding metropolitan alliance between the populace near uh, close in to the big city suburbs and the big cities, that's nearly unbeatable. Which, uh, you know, as we see, they had some trouble doing, as, as evidenced by the, the Sanders-Clinton rift. Uh, nonetheless, to Eliana's point on, on Democrats, the sort of symbolism of Democrats finally taking one of these elections. We had a number. How many special elections have we had? We have Montana. We've had two, and then we've got two coming yeah, up. In right. addition to Georgia, Montana, there's Montana, where an South assaulter won. Right, you know, right. Pulling, that's but demoralizing I mean, like Democrats for Democrats. Are, they're under pressure to win yeah. one of these, and the national apparatus, the super PACs, and the parties are under pressure to spend heavily. In fact, there was some thought that, like, if only they would have spent a little bit more in, in, in one. I forget which it one of these. Like, started focusing on it earlier. Kansas, right, right. Why didn't they spend earlier, more? Yeah. And they got a lot of heat in the Sanders wing of the party was saying it's the Clinton folks who still control it, and they're not loosening the purse strings, and it's a bad strategic decision of the sort that sort of led to Hillary Clinton running such a stilted campaign. You definitely see them loosening the purse strings, uh, the purse strings, and and spending heavily in this race in Georgia. In fact, uh, not only did Ossoff set a fundraising record; he's already at twenty three million raise, which is just like an unheard of sum for uh, a campaign. But then the spending in the race already has topped forty million dollars in a house race. I mean, just to put that in perspective, in an abbreviated house race, abbreviated <laughs> house race, the old. Uh, back in the way back in the public financing day of the presidential election, <laughs> Thanks, John McCain, when John McCain took, the, he was the last candidate to take the public financing grant in the general election. That was $84 million. $84 million has been like almost half of that has been spent in a single house raise. It just could be goes, more by the time it's over. It'll yeah. definitely be way more. And just goes to show. Uh, how dramatically the campaign finance landscape has shifted in the era of super PACs and, frankly, in the era of refusing public financing. Thanks, Obama. Well, but it also gets back to something that uh, Eliana said, right, about the galvanizing effect of this. We're seeing the uh, – we, we may be seeing a hint of things to come in how – Right, for uh, 2018. In how donors have reacted to this. And as, especially it, it it didn't start with these, you know, head ha- big honchos in, in Washington deciding to pour money in. It was – uh, small donors giving money online that has multiplied and multiplied into this, uh, like we just said, Ossoff raising $15 million right, over he, the last two that, months. Uh, the average contribution to his campaign was $20.49. So uh, what was Sanders again? I think it was $27. $27. So <laughs> Ossoff with a major win, getting that under the $27 average contribution. So... Let's circle back to the the data point that we started back with the those twelve or thirteen thousand new voters who have already jumped into this runoff despite not uh, running in the first round. 
Charlie, we, we can like break this down a little bit, but basically, you know, it's, it's a special election, right? And so turnout is typically lower. And so what both parties are essentially trying to do after $40 million have been spent, there's essentially no undecided voters left. There's no one left in these, in this district who does not have an opinion of John Ossoff and Karen Handel. And so they are just spreading out across the district to try and mine block by block for people who have voted in past elections who they think might vote for them this time and drag them to the polls over the next week and a half. Yeah, it must be so annoying to live there right now. I mean, <laughs> you're just bombarded with direct mail. People are knocking on your door nonstop. Every show uh, that has any uh, that has an iota of intelligence is having political ads run on it. You know, you just can't avoid the race. But uh, to be honest, like I think the the most important part of this race is in the turnout that we that you're talking about is the implications for 2018. Because uh, you know, one of the reasons that Republicans have had such smashing successes in uh, recent midterms is because of the turnout differential between presidential elections, where you have a much higher Democratic turnout, and the uh, midterms when you have a uh, you know a better Republican turnout because it, it could, because the electorate turns out tends to be you know whiter and older and you know the kinds of factors that that often lead to Republican success and so what this says about Democratic turnout in 2018 is ultimately going to be the most important part of of the outcome. That's a really interesting point, and you know also 2018 is an interesting year in the in the like broader scope of this. Democratic strategists like to talk about something they call the rising American electorate as their base, and it's basically is that the Obama coalition? Is that the fancy word for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the 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 kind of overlapping groups of 18 to 29 year olds. Uh, minorities and unmarried women, and and kind of how th- how that group over you know overlaps in a lot of areas, but basically that that that's the the group that that powers. Uh, de- powered Democratic victories for President Obama in uh, 08 and 12. And if you look at that that group's share of the electorate, uh, election to election, Lake Research Partners, a Democratic polling firm, did an analysis of this. And basically, in you know, it, it shoots up in presidentials and then down in midterms and then up a little more and so on and so forth. But the midterms lag about 10 years behind the presidentials, basically, you know, in terms of what what the composition of the electorate turns out. But that means in 2018, assuming these trends continue, the Democrats are looking at having a 2008 type electorate, an Obama electorate, like the, the years of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the future, (laughs) the, the future as, as, uh, Obama put it, has now arrived for midterm races. So I'm not sure how good an excuse that would be for them anymore. I mean, if they, if they can't do it this year with the anti-incumbent energy and and that demographic change kind of catching up a little bit. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's not a great sign. And obviously they have redistricting to deal with and all sorts of other uh, exogenous factors, but that is that how is that what that word means? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. That's an impressive SAT word. Well, though. yeah, well, except it turns out I didn't know what it meant. Now we know how Scott Bland <laughs> ended up crushing You're the AP SAT. English guy. Um, yeah. I was I was an AP English guy actually. Hi, Mr. Anderson, if you're listening. <laughs> All right, let's let's just chop it there. Let's call it a week. Ken, thank you for being here for the Ken Ultimate episode of the Nerdcast. Fun time as always. Charlie, thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Eliana, thanks. Gracias. And of course, as always, thank you to our listeners. Remember, email questions to us if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com and subscribe, rate, and review the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Once again, thank you, listeners. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, our researcher and web producer, Zach Montalaro, and our producer stepping in this week, Matt Sobosinski. Thanks again. We will talk to you next week.